Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by academic dean and professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, Dr. Grace Sutanto, systematic theologian, professor of systematic theology here, and Bavink scholar, Herman Bavink scholar. I'm just going to start listing now little tidbits from things that you guys do. And our resident preaching guru and homiletician and New Testament professor, senior pastor of New City Presbyterian Church, Paul Jean, who just has a book that came out on preaching. It's good to be with you all and discuss the Ten Commandments. We're continuing on in this conversation about the law as it was given to Moses, first in Exodus 20, and then in the second giving of the law, not on Sinai this time, but the second giving on the steps of Moab in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we are now at the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath day commandment. So I'm going to go ahead and read this out of Exodus 20, though there's an interesting distinction between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 in this case. So I'm going to read the Exodus 21 so we have something to work with, and uh, we'll start our discussion, and maybe we can unpack a little bit of the difference between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy. So here it is, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Think of all of the commandments that we've been reading so far. This is the one that really introduces something that for the modern day Christian may may feel in some ways the most alien or the most kind of set apart from their normal modern life. And it raises a lot of interesting questions. And it's interesting that it's this one that gets so much explanation, you know, gets rooted in the creation order. It's rooted in how God created the heavens and the earth and then rested. And therefore, Moses is requiring the Israelites to rest. And so it raises a question, what does this mean to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as it says, and what's the rationale? What's the kind of theological rationale behind it? So start this off, let me go ahead and begin with our systematician, since as we all know, systematic theology is the queen of the sciences. We need to start, we need to start at the source and then work our way back. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Go ahead, Dr. Sutanto. Help us understand what is Sabbath and how do we keep it holy? Sure. I think one of the bases for keeping the Sabbath day holy is that we're made in God's image, and God had created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. And that became a kind of analogical framework through which we should see our own human living, that if, if God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh day, so we too should work for the six and then rest in the seventh day and we should keep it holy and that we should set this day apart in in the, in the language of westminster larger catechism for a holy resting recognizing that this particular day we would rest from our daily labors and we would devote our time and attention unto the lord 
uh, to remind us that we are his, we're made in his image, we're imitating him, but also to remind us that our time and our labor is for him, that by attending to his name once again, every Sunday here in the context of, of New Testament Christianity, we would be able to say that our labors for him, but also after this, we are now refueled from his word so that we could be sent out again. We're gathered and then scattered on Sunday so that we might devote our time to him and recognize that he is the Lord of our time and our work. That's probably a good starting point. Yeah, no, that's a great starting point. You, and you really did highlight there the setting thing, a, a thing apart, which is, of course, you know, a good definition of what is holy, a thing that is set apart for God. You know, that's, uh, if you think about the sacred and all, and that whole word group, sacred, sanctification, consecration, it's all talking about setting something apart to God. And it's interesting that, that Moses kind of roots it in this commandment. He roots it in God's own character, right? This is an outpouring, as we've been saying about the Ten Commandments. They are an outpouring of God's eternal character. And here we hear and learn about how he is a creator and how in the creation there is a there is a kind of rest. Of course, it's not a human rest that he participates in, but as we are reflecting on our creator God who then made us in his image, we are called to live likewise and to set apart a day as unto him and unto his, you know, unto his service and rest. My initial thought there was to, to ask about, uh, you know, your your first comment, Scott, about how this is so different and foreign in some respects to the rhythm of our culture, which, you know, doesn't set apart a day as sacred. Like it's that seems arbitrary just to, to refer to one day as more or one time as more holy than another seems so primitive in some ways but then you but then you had the kind of grounding this in the nature of god and then my brain went into overdrive you know i i wonder how how that rhythm of or the sacredness of rest or the sacredness of sabbath is tied to the nature of god in, in what ways does it derive from some from from who god is yeah no i, I think it's it's it is an interesting question and it's interesting that partly getting at the Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 5 distinction, because in both cases, it says, because of what God has done, you should honor the Sabbath. Interestingly, in Exodus 20, it's focusing on God's work as creator, right, as we just read. And then in Deuteronomy 5, it's focused or kind of rooted in God's character as redeemer, so it has the same introduction, but then at verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, it says, instead of, you know, God created the heavens and the earth and then rest on the seventh day, it says, instead of that, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. And I, and I don't think what you're seeing here is that, oh, this is this is a contradiction to Exodus 20, Right. But what is it? It's this kind of development of God's character as creator and redeemer. And it's interesting that the Sabbath requirement is rooted in sort of both of those aspects of the divine character, that God created the heavens and the earth, therefore rest. God has redeemed you out of slavery and work, therefore rest, right? And, you know, while moderns, you know, those of us today, we, we all love our rest and we love our leisure you know, for us, it's often, you know, depending on depending on the context you're in, it's either something you're squeezing into the cracks in between your work, 
right? Or, you know, if, if you're one of those completely leisurely oriented people, then all you work merely only to provide the grounds in which you can rest, but rest is always the goal. Leisure is always the goal. And in this case, what you kind of see is something a little bit different. You see this kind of very natural balance between work and rest that you work to rest. And then as you rest, a great point you pointed out, you rest so that you might work, right? And there's this kind of balance cyclicalness to it that kind of gets at who we are as humans made in the image of a creator, redeemer, God. Yeah, and I think those two features, Scott, that you pointed out, creator and redeemer, really pick out the characteristics of God that is grounding the Sabbath command. Because when we are resting from our labor, we're, yes, imitating the creator God because he too took up a royal rest and he enjoyed his good creation. But also we are expressing our dependence on him as our creator, that the work of our labor is not the direct primary cause of why it is that we can enjoy the fruits of our labor, but God himself is, he remains the creator. So that when we benefit from our labor, we recognize that he is the giver of the fruits, right? That he himself right. gives us the energy for why we can labor. And he gives us the profit from why, from, from what we labor. And also when we recognize that he's our redeemer, we can rest because we're no longer slaves, not only no longer slaves in Egypt in the context of Deuteronomy, but also no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to the dominions and principalities of this world so that we no longer have to strive for things in the way that the world strives for things. We no longer have a slave master that tells us that we have to labor. Rather, in our resting, we express that God is enough. God is sufficient for me. He is my mm -hmm. Lord. And now I'm free to rest precisely because he has redeemed me from my past slave masters. And now he is a good Lord who loves to give us himself to have communion with him. I can add a third, a third pole here. You've got creator, redeemer, um, grounding the commandment to rest. One of the things that Hebrews does that I think is very interesting is, is provide a, an eschatological way of thinking about the commandment as well. So, so there, the period of work is this present redemptive historical period. It is this wilderness wandering in which we live, Hebrews 3. But there remains a promise, Hebrews 4, that uh, four nine, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and it's clear in the context of that passage that the Sabbath rest that the author is referring to is a, a heavenly rest, an eschatological rest that He will grant to us upon the consummation of all things. So you've got this Creator, uh, Redeemer, but also consummating God who brings all things to their victorious conclusion. I think that adds a lot to the Sabbath as well. We've got it as a command because he is creator. We've got it as a command because he is redeemer. He's freed us up to rest, but it's also a command because he's, he's a promiser. He's promised us this future rest. And that means that we can even have a rest. Now we can rest in our labors incomplete though. They may be on a Saturday. Nevertheless, we can rest freely knowing that it is God who brings the fruit out of these things in their own proper time. And will bring all things to glory when this, age of groaning is released into victory and, and, and into, into eternity. Yeah, I love everything you guys have been sharing. Um, and I think a lot about how, I don't want this to come off like um, the wrong way, but how Christians alone can uniquely rest. And you see this actually when you read a lot of memoirs by incredibly successful people, right? That 
even when they have succeeded more than most of us ever will, there's a restlessness, right? And this is why, again, what's unique about Christianity and just for Christians is that there's a deep sense, you know, that Jesus has accomplished everything and everything will be fine you know, regardless, right? And so that's why whether we are actually physically resting or laboring, there is this abiding sense that, you know, you're at a state of rest. And I think it makes all the difference in the world because you know of people and maybe, you know, maybe we ourselves struggle with this, that even when we are physically resting, we're going on vacation, right? We don't actually feel rested because there's something much uh, deeper going on. Whereas again, the, like what's ironic is that even when we labor as Christians, because our identity, our salvation, justification, you know, rest on, you know, ultimately the outcome or performance, right? There's this strange like restfulness that comes. And this is like not at all theoretical. I think this contributes to longevity and like uh, ministry and life and so forth. And so this is why, again, I think like uh, we can share the gospel uh, and really highlight what's so unique about it and how it really does make a difference in the way everyone lives. That's a great point. I, I, I love how you say that too, how Christians have a unique, we have a, perhaps a unique experience. I mean, definitely a unique ideation or, you know, or, or theology about rest, but we have opportunity to have a unique experience of rest as those who can say, you know, they're truly reconciled to the creator God, right? Who those who can say like they are, they await an imperishable existence, the new heavens and new earth. And that, that, that adds an element to your rest or has an opportunity to add an element to your rest that is deeply redemptive. And, and practical. I, I mean, I was yeah. thinking as you were talking, Paul, just, okay, if this is all true, like the things that Gray was saying and Scott and, you know, if, like, and you, like what it requires me to do is develop actually to cultivate a, life of patience, like patiently waiting on the Lord, which is really hard for me. I'm a perpetually impatient person, but, um, and maybe that, that kind of is at the heart of some of the problems or struggles or challenges that I have with Sabbath is that I'm not patient in that kind of Job, uh, James four kind of way, waiting on the Lord to bring, to bring the fruit from, from my labors. Yeah. Two things come to mind, especially I was thinking about what Paul just said there too and, and what you just added to that Tommy is that there's this work underneath the work Tim Keller says about all of our human labor that in our work we're always trying to justify ourselves we're always trying to prove ourselves to be something maybe I'm writing to make a name for myself or maybe I want to work harder on the weekends because I need to please my parents especially in an Asian setting that's a very significant uh, motivator whatever it might be there's always this desire to prove ourselves before a judgment seat and because we've been justified in Jesus Christ, we can rest in the fact that God has approved of me. And if God has approved of me, that means all of the other finite judgment seats of the world is in a real way no longer going to have a hold on my heart. It's no longer going to be relevant ultimately. And so when I work, I can give over myself to my labor joyfully as unto the Lord, not because my identity hangs on it, but because God is already pleased with me and I want to please my God through my work. And I'm also recognizing as I'm doing that, that ultimately my reward is secure in heaven and not something on earth. So that when I labor and I don't get something that I expect that is earthly, it won't disappoint me as much either. And I think that also gives us a sense of rest, the sense of tranquility, 
not a kind of stoicism that says, I don't really care about what happens to me, but a kind that says, you know, ultimately my identity is secure and I can, I can give myself over my labor knowing that my reward is already going to be guaranteed in the last day. Yeah, along these lines, I've been thinking about how like spiritual it is to rest, you know, for all the reasons that you've stated. I think, for instance, like whenever we sleep, right, literally whenever we sleep or whenever we decide to break, it's a deep expression of faith. Because, you know, we think about what Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I think, you know, as you get involved with people's lives in your church and, you know, just in your neighborhood, you see that there's always work to be done and that no matter how much you work, there's always more to be done, right? And so there's a sense where like, there's justification to not wrestling, but then because we really do believe salvation belongs to the Lord. And I think it's very God honoring when we recognize we're finite beings, you know, I need to sleep, I need to rest. I'm not like God, I'm not infinite, right? Um, so I've been thinking a lot about the spirituality of um, sleeping and rest. And one of the topics that actually comes up a lot with our seminary students is like, you know, how to adopt a healthy pace for ministry, healthy you know, lifestyle. And I do think that it just comes from uh, believing that sleep in itself is one of the best ways we can honor God. I appreciate that. I, I like that spiritual aspect to it. It. But there's a challenge there too, because there's, as you know, as Scott mentioned at the very beginning, there is something kind of odd about this commandment that that's unique to it among the ten. It has a kind of specific, almost seemingly arbitrary addendums attached to it. Like it has to be on Saturday uh, in the old covenant, Sunday in the new. It, 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 there's a religiosity to it, a, a habit to it and a specificity to it that has kind of sacramental features as well, kind of that old-time religion idea. Uh, and I'd be interested, like, how how do we obey Sabbath? Because it's it's more than just kind of developing a rhythm of rest. The, the, the confession does talk about that, that this is not just one day in seven, that it's also a pattern for life of rest and worship. Uh, but what is the practice of Sabbath and how specific should we be in those practices? Am I making sense? Yeah. I think the, the, the question you're getting at too, is you're kind of sensing because all the rest of these commandments are sort of general. I think we read them and we go, yeah, I get it. I mean, maybe some of us say not bearing false testimony against your neighbor. That's kind of an interesting way to say, tell the truth. And it does hint that there's like a cultural thing going on there that maybe we're not quite as aware of, you know, but everything else I think kind of makes sense, you know, but then you get to this and it is built. There is something more culturally bound, I think, for this more culturally um, sort of captive, perhaps. And then as soon as you read the Old Testament, you realize, actually, this is quite a this is this is a a whole arrangement that we would not be aware of or or familiar with nowadays, because this is something that was enforced by the state. It involved any kind of trade with people both within and outside of the land. It wasn't like it was okay to trade with Gentiles or something on the Sabbath or something like that. Like this was something that was supposed to be enforced across the board. And it really did have the feeling, you use that interesting, you use that verb, you know, sacramentalize, but it does have to have a feel of a sacrament in the Old Testament. 
and why that's interesting in part is um, because it doesn't have the same exact feel in the New Testament, right? It's not one of the sacraments. We, we have sacraments in the Old Testament, and we have sacraments in the New, and this is not a sacrament, as it were, in the New Testament. And it kind of raises a question, how do we think about it from the Old to the New? I mean, Nehemiah, as he's trying to sort of trigger the returnees to full repentance and covenant restoration, you know, after, you know, in, in fifth century BC, one of his main things is like, we've got to get the Sabbath back online. You know, we got to, we got to get this rolling again, right? Or uh, Messiah won't return. And yet, interestingly, you don't see that same concern when Messiah returns. And so it does raise some interesting questions about how do we, I think we know how it was practiced in the old. So how are we supposed to practice it today? And having said that, I fulfilled my duties as an Old Testament professor, and so I hand it off back to you all in the New Testament. Well, it really does get to the, that practical question, right? See, I there's mean, the queen of the sciences again. Come on now, Gray. All right. Uh, we'll keep <laughs> no, going just, keep going. Keep going, please. No. please. Um, it, it, is, it is definitely just a practical question. We've, we've covered, I think, the biblical and theological and even pastoral bases for why it is that we need to keep the Sabbath. But, but yeah, you're right, Scott, that we need to ask the question now, what does it look like exactly to keep the Sabbath day holy? Um, and does this mean that I can't eat out in a restaurant? Does this mean that I can't press the buttons in the elevator for me to get to a particular floor? But, you know, um, I should wait for it to, to just open itself up in every floor. So what is required of me? And what is our position on this? Tommy, you just took an exception to the Sabbath. So why don't you... Oh, oh, sure. Greg. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right, okay, wait, to Tommy. Tommy is moving his credentials into a new presbytery for everyone who's listening, just to get some background. So he, this has been a very practical question for him of late, because like all of us who are ordained, you have to account for uh, your views on all kinds of things, including um, how they align with Westminster and the Westminster Assembly on issues like the Sabbath. So that, that's what Gray's reference meant. Yeah, and, and it's pretty typical in, in the PCA, in my denomination, to take an exception, particularly to, well, there, there tends to be several exceptions that um, collate around the Sabbath that tend to be typical, but the one that is most typical is that um, the, here's, here's the chapter 22 of the, the standards, uh, this is paragraph 8, that uh, that you observe a that uh, duly preparing your hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand. All people are to observe as uh, the whole day as holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, and take up the whole time in the public and private exercise of his worship. And the, the exception that is, tip, is typical there is the the idea of recreation is is recreations and the catechism goes on to describe that as recreations that would ordinarily be permitted on the other days are they not permitted on the sabbath and the wording of the standard seems to imply that i'm supposed to spend every moment of the day both in thought and indeed in um, worship and so the exception i took was that that is typical is that there are some forms of rest that are permitted on uh, some forms of recreation that are permitted on the Sabbath because they're consistent with the commandment to rest. It's um, 
and so as kind of I was uh, articulating this, um, the way I've I've kind of thought about it is at the heart of Sabbath is worship. That this is what it is to rest. The most perfect picture of what it means to rest is to rest from our worldly labors as we anticipate the heavenly rest that is to come, which is to say the fullness of the presence of God in a, a world that no longer groans for its redemption. That's what rest is. And so rest is always caught up in thanksgiving and worship to God. But that, that thanksgiving and worship, while all of our activity on the Sabbath should be in orbit around uh, that thanksgiving and worship, nevertheless, I can do that through some types of recreation. Um, and I think a lot of that depends on conscience and other things, and it gets kind of um, specific how you think about it. But uh, not all recreations, I think, are permitted, but some are. And so uh, the exception I took is that the, that the language is a little bit too broad. Yeah, and that's the common in in the evangelical Presbyterian Church where I'm ordained. This is kind of the the regular uh, exception that's taken as well, or or scruple, for that matter. But th- this is, you know, it, it it gets at this kind of question both of sort of what's the target language trying to communicate, what's meant by worldly employments and recreations, which I think is interestingly broad language particularly knowing what we know of, of kind of typical Sabbath practice, even in the Puritan period, you know, the idea of going on a walk with your family, for instance, you know, something that my family does a lot on Sabbath. Is that a, is that an ordinary worldly recreation or is that actually in a way as a father, you know, is this a deed of mercy and, and, and worship and, and, you know, with my family, there's all kinds of ways in which you could fall into a kind of, you know, sort of a rank legalism and applying this, and yet also at the same time, you know, and I think it's something that, that to challenge those who are considering their use of the Sabbath and recognizing it as a gift, it might, it should change the way I think, and Tommy, this is what I think you were getting at too. It should change the way you do your recreations, yeah. you know, right. it should change the way you're participating in recreation. What is this unto the glory of God? Is this a, a work of ministry uh, with your friends and family and the covenant community around you and your region? You know, is this, uh, is this a work of, of mercy? and necessity and worship, you know, do we all need to go out and buy kosher ovens so that we're not cooking any food on Sunday or having anyone over to our house? Cause that's something that we might do on the rest of the week. It is an interesting, it's, it's an interesting distinction to make. And yet for the, you know, for the Sabbath observance, this idea of everything being directed in a different way towards that, as Westminster calls it, holy rest. Yeah, and, and that word holy is, the I think, the key word there, that it is yeah. set apart for a unique purpose. The whole, and that, that's where I, the confessional language is very helpful. The whole day is holy. And while that can be used in a kind of bumper sticker way to imply that, that, uh, uh, that application of the Sabbath to one's own personal life is easy peasy, uh, which I don't think that should be the case, it does introduce the concept of its uniqueness, that it is set apart by the Lord for the work of eschatological creational rest. Yeah, that's beautiful. I was at our our colleague, uh, Dr. Peter Lee's church yesterday, and, and he was leading in worship, and he was reminding us of that point that this is a day of rest. It's not an hour of rest. This is a day of rest. And for so yeah. many Christians, I think it's showing up at church at nine and leaving at 10, you know, 
that's that's my observance of the holy day and recognizing that this is a, this is a gift for us to observe for the whole day right to really set it apart and that might be sundown on saturday to sundown on sunday or however you think about that I, again i don't think we have to move into legalism in this regard but recognizing that this is a full this is a gift of god to his people uh and it's reminding us that he's a god of rest and in, and in an age when you know, workaholism is probably the most acceptable sin, particularly if you live in the Washington, D.C. area, where people like to boast about how early they wake up and how late they go to bed at night because of how hard they're working. Our Lord reminds us that if you want to work in the way that he intended, that you are, that you're someone who's who rests and who knows how to really rest. Yeah, right. And that's a gift. I think it's a gift to his people and that's a gift to the world. Yeah, one one challenge to think about maybe before before we wrap up, though, is, you know, especially since a lot of our audience um, are ministering in churches where Sunday is a work day, how do, I'd be interested, Paul, in your thoughts in particular, like, how, what do you do to carve out that sacred time of, of rest, both you and your, your family? I've, I've always found that challenging and shifting as our, uh, our kids changed in their ages and, and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot <laughs> no no i you know it's two thoughts that immediately came to my mind were one i'm very thankful for having a church specifically a group of deacons and elders that guard my rest time and incorporate rest into the way they think about my schedule, even my compensation package. I think that's one of the best ways they care for me. They, they know that my inclination is to keep working. You know, um, now my personality is actually, it's harder for me to stop like writing or stop preparing a sermon than to just do it on a regular basis. And I think because I have a leadership that knows me, and cares for me, they mandate rest for me. And they do it in the form of uh, giving me regular time off to just go away and write. I know that might not seem restful, but I, so I think that I don't really think of it in an individual way. I think about just how much like my church leadership has helped me in this area. And um, the other thing I think I have found helpful, and this might sound a bit new agey, but um, I just listen to my body, like, uh, and so uh, I know pastors have different practices, but I really enjoy working on Mondays, actually, because um, I feel like it gets the ball rolling. I think about, you know, what has to get done, whether it's with a seminary, a church, or especially my sermon, and then, you know, I begin working, and then Tuesday, I keep the momentum, but almost rhythmically, Around Tuesday evening, my body begins to like slow down. And um, I keep it really simple. During those times, I just like, just take a break. And, um, and you know, like Tommy, I, I appreciate what you shared about, you know, it's gonna look different as your family evolves. It was very different when I was single, but as your family evolves, you do have to consider that. But I have found that to be a really helpful principle. And so I generally try not to schedule like heavy things like a, a session meeting or 
uh, or I don't know, like a heavy counseling meeting on a Tuesday night. I generally try to keep that evening quiet. So I have found that to be helpful for me uh, in terms of how to find a good time to rest. You know, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about guys is, uh, Tommy mentioned something of this earlier. If you read a lot of like recent literature on like health from a secular perspective, one thing I have found like fascinating is like this renewed appreciation for sleep. Uh, I forget the title of this book, but um, Bill Gates recommended it on his uh, blog. And he was talking about when Microsoft first began, um, he would just work, work, work. And he had like a bottle of Tang. Do you, you guys remember what that was? The orange powdery substance. And so when he needed a kick, he would literally just dig into the Tang and then swallow keep working and then even at his uh, corporate uh, corporation it was almost a badge of honor to work into the late night uh work consecutive days but i think there's like this trend now this trend of really valuing um sleep regular sleep you know deep sleep right and so i think that's one of the things i've been trying to really encourage like pastors and um just people in ministry that not sleeping is not a badge of honor. You know, actually, like when you don't sleep, you're not ex you're not embracing that you're finite, and you you really do need regular sleep. And so, and that's just something I find myself having a lot of conversations about when people ask me about my work life balance. I just tell them um, I sleep eight hours a day, and I think people are surprised by that. But I definitely try to get eight hours a day, and and it's okay. I've learned not to be like ashamed of it or anything like that. That's awesome. Yeah, I've heard it said that sleep is the most single most important performance enhancing drug, you know, that, that we can all have. And, and of course, rest is for that. I mean, that's what we were kind of talking about earlier. Rest is to equip you for the work. And as you work, it's equipping you for the rest in a way your rest earns your work and your work earns your rest in this age while we long for and look forward to that eschatological rest uh, that is to come. This has been a great conversation, friends, and, and I've really appreciated hearing your thoughts on this. This is one of those issues I think we need to constantly be reminded of and actually hold each other accountable to as well, particularly as we're working in a, in a culture and a time in which rest can either be an idol or it can be completely ignored and seen as a, a vice of some kind. And we have to remember uh, that our Lord calls us to rest because it flows out of his own character. It's been great having this conversation. I look forward to being back with you all next week. For everyone else, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Tell your friends about it. It's actually been really encouraging uh, after doing this for the last, I think it's been a year and a half, guys, You know, to actually be out and about doing things sometimes on trips on, on behalf of the seminary and running into people who say, oh yeah, no, I listen to the faculty podcast, that there's actually, that's actually a thing that happens. <laughs> and uh, so please do tell your friends about it. Um, uh, but with that said, we just love getting together and having this conversation every week and I appreciate y'all for it. So for everyone else until next week, take care.
you know, ironically, you can tell exactly how many episodes that we've been, how many weeks we've been uh, recording because we've done so restlessly. We, we have recorded, we've posted an episode every week since we started. Wow. We have not rested. Every, Amazing. Oh, we posted every week, but we didn't we did. have one every yeah. week, right? We didn't have one every week. We've posted how many, every week. Did, how we, many, did we not miss, ever miss a week? Has there ever been a week that we've missed? Okay. Timo, is, Timo has been a, a, a taskmaster. Machine. 